You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I am here. Aaron is here. This show's presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for Windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. A Game of Thrones recap, end of show. We'll do the spoiler alert again. Uh, I will confess to you, Aaron, that I just watched it this morning. Good way to uh, start a day. Yeah, I was uh, watched it early this morning. I was away in uh, in Jersey for the Easter weekend with in-laws. And by the way, uh, on my way home, veered east with my oldest son and went to the Borgata. Why not? Easter Sunday, brunch early, some church, and then Borgata, here we come. What was the game of choice? Uh, we, I played, uh, I played, we played blackjack for a couple hours, and then we played dice for you know about an hour and a half, two hours, got dinner, and came home. Got home really late last night and actually won some money. Won money playing both cards and craps. There we go. Yeah, so it was uh, it was pretty good. Um, anyway, got home late last night, which is why I didn't watch Thrones last night. Had recorded it, got up this morning, and we will do an end of show recap. And I will just say, like I said last week, I don't know any of the reaction this week because I stayed off of social media until I had watched it. Um, Smart move. But I liked it again. I mean, I don't know if everybody hated this one too, or a lot of people hated this one, but I thought it was a great episode. I, more more people were receptive to this one. Okay. Um, anyway, we'll get to that at the end of the show. Andy Benoit, uh, who writes uh, for Monday Morning Quarterback on SI.com and really knows NFL offensive football and quarterbacking, um, had him uh, multiple times on the radio show over the years. He's going to join us here shortly. We'll talk about some of the drafted, um, pl- uh, some of the the guys in the draft, and and talk about really Jay Gruden to to a certain extent, and and what kind of quarterback he needs here this year, and if Case Keenum, uh, as an example, is a good fit, and a lot more with him. We'll get um, to a couple of Redskin thoughts here to start the show. Then we'll get to the Caps, who can eliminate Carolina tonight on the road. Uh, the Hurricanes uh, will try to force a seventh and deciding game. And I think already we've got two game sevens in the NHL. Both of the games yesterday were game sixes that ultimately forced game sevens. Um, we'll see if that happens tonight, but we will definitely talk about the game Saturday night in which the Caps really uh, defended uh, home ice uh, like a champion does in a big spot. couple of Redskin thoughts um, just to start real quickly. One comes from... Our good friend Ben Standig, um, who writes for NBC Sports Washington, uh, he had a tweet over the weekend that one league source told him that the Redskins are one of Will Greer's, Will Greer, the quarterback from West Virginia, one of Will Greer's most likely destinations. So he put that out there uh, over the weekend, and I wanted to weigh in on that real quickly. Um, Will Greer, for me... Uh, is a better fit for Gruden than Haskins, as an example, or even Locke. You know, Will Greer, for for me, is a guy that, first of all, does throw quickly. He's got good quick release, reads the field well, accurate enough. People have questioned his size. I think he's big enough. Some have questioned his, his arm strength. I think he's at least very, you know, at least Andy Dalton from that standpoint. Um, I think he competes really hard, and he is a playmaker. You know, I like Will Greer. I don't like Will Greer at 15, but if they were to take Will Greer, I don't think I'd have a problem with that. I think I would find that pretty interesting. I think he's a playmaker and a competitive, competes hard kind of guy. Um, and I, I think Jarrett Stidham is the same. 
Uh, Cooley doesn't like Stidham at all. I thought, you know, going into this discussion of the draft when the regular season ended and Stidham became available, I thought Stidham would be a good guy in the second or third round, like more so than a Finley. Um, but anyway, to me, they're, they're, they're similar. Um, the problem with Stidham is that he had a bad year, and a lot of the tape, more recent tape, isn't good. The junior tape's much better. Greer in the second round, or perhaps even the third? Okay. Now, if you were to ask me, would you prefer taking that second round pick and packaging it for Josh Rosen rather than taking Greer, I would say package it up and get Rosen. That would be my preference on that. Then Will Greer. Uh, Todd McShay um, had something very early this morning on ESPN.com. Quote, I have heard rumblings that Washington is most interested in Ohio State quarterback Dwayne Haskins, but I've also heard Missouri's Drew Locke thrown out there for them. The Redskins are a trade-up candidate, but how far? They could jump into the top five to make sure that they get their quarterback, or they could sit tight and wait until about number eight or number nine and figure out a way to deke or get past Denver, Cincinnati, and Miami. I don't know if I'm buying the Haskins thing. I believe that the football people, or so-called football people in Ashburn, I think they like they like Locke more than Haskins. I've mentioned that before. I think they like Locke more than Haskins. Now, Dan Snyder may like Haskins more than anybody else. So that's a possibility. Why you ask, we've talked about this before, but I will... Mention it, mention it again, Haskins went to Bullis with Dan's son. Um, and so Dan followed the Haskins career at Bullis. Um, if you recall, when Haskins was at Bullis, and I saw him play um, as a high school player, he was committed to Maryland initially. And then when Randy Edsel got fired and DJ Durkin got hired, instead of Mike Loxley in that moment, Haskins said no, and then pursued really his lifelong dream to that point, which was to play for Ohio State. Uh, I just, I'm not a Haskins guy, and I haven't been from early on in the college football season. I personally like Drew Locke more. Murray, to me, is the only quarterback deserving to go in the top 15 in this draft, in my opinion. And even saying Murray is a top 15 guy is is a talent call. You know, I don't know enough about the rest of Murray. So I, I don't necessarily buy into the McShay thing unless Dan's really pushing the Haskins thing to the football people. The football people, um, I think, prefer Locke over Haskins. I think I've said that for a while now. Now, it would not surprise me as, as they look beyond the first round, assuming that Haskins, Locke, and even Daniel Jones and Murray are all gone in the first round. It would not surprise me if what Ben got is true that perhaps they like Greer a little bit. But what kind of value do they put on him? Do they put a second-round grade on him? Do they put a third-round grade on him? I don't know. Um, It's possible that Greer could go late in the first round. It's also possible, if you, depending on which mock you look at, he could last until the early part of the third round. Um, So uh, I, I, I know we've talked about this before, but just to make my position clear, quarterbacks in the first round of this draft at 15 or higher, Murray, yes, nobody else. Nobody else. I just don't think that there is anything closely resembling a lock or anything close to it. 
Um, and that includes, no pun intended, Drew Locke. I don't think he's anywhere near. They're, they're all flawed to a certain degree. Will Greer, for this day and age and for a Gruden-style offense, might be a decent fit and a decent guy to bring in to, to back up perhaps Case Keenum in year one, and maybe they deal McCoy or release McCoy. Especially, uh, that could be dependent on his health, too. Now, as far as Murray goes, I mean, did you see all of the reporting on Murray over the weekend, the various discussions about Murray? Like, if Arizona doesn't take him, some people think that not only could he be available at 15, he might be available when we get into the mid-20s. I don't buy that. Someone uh, someone will. I do think the longer this goes, I do think that it's less likely that Arizona takes him. I don't think there's any way they can take him if Josh Rosen is still on that roster. So if it gets to Thursday and Josh Rosen is still around, I don't think he goes number one. But I do think there would be someone, Cincinnati or Miami or whoever, who ends up trading up for him. I still think that Murray's going to go number one. But imagine the red flags all over Murray if Arizona doesn't take him. If they don't, it is a warning to everybody because you have to assume that at least part of the reason the Cardinals hired Cliff Kingsbury was because they had the number one pick in the draft and they had a chance to draft Kyler Murray because Kingsbury is a Murray guy. If they don't take him, there was something there that really they didn't like. And they may come out after the draft and say, well, it was because we really couldn't pass on Quinnen Williams or Nick Bosa. But no, it would be a red flag. Red flags all over Murray if Arizona doesn't take him one. And then if he starts to slide, then let's say he is there at 15. You know, what do you do? By the way, Haskins, if you listen to all of the conversation, could be there at 15 also. That, I think, is getting more and more likely. I don't know what's likely and what isn't, because I think tomorrow we could both come in and say, oh, there it is, the Giants are basically going to take Haskins. Who knows? But let's say Haskins is there at 15. Let's say Murray, Locke, and Jones are all gone, and Haskins is sitting there at 15. You know, personally, that would just say to me, Stick to your board, take the best player available, don't reach for Haskins. I know that there would be some marketing buzz over Haskins. He is after Murray, let's be honest, after Murray, Haskins is the biggest named quarterback in this draft. Yes, you know, very no question. Because he played for Ohio State and because even a casual college football fan saw Haskins a lot this year and didn't see uh, Locke this year. Didn't see Daniel Jones this year. Didn't see Will Greer this year. You did see a lot of Dwayne Haskins. There will be some temptation that Haskins is a ticket seller at 15. I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine, but I bet if Haskins falls to 15, it's telling you that almost everybody's board had Haskins much further down the board. And in this particular draft, with all of the defensive position, uh, players available, that the pass rushers in particular, which Charlie Casserly told us about, and by the way, just as an aside, if you missed the Casserly interview on Friday, go listen to it for 30 minutes. If you tried to listen early on in the volume, we had some trouble with the volume. Aaron fixed it. So you can just go to the KevinSheehanShow.com and click on, I think it starts at like the nine and a half minute mark. Casserly was great. We also talked about a lot of old Redskins stuff too, which was interesting also. But if Haskins is sitting there at 15, most boards had Haskins way down the board. 
if he if he gets by Denver and Miami and the Giants and then the Redskins are sitting there with an opportunity, I personally believe that if they were to take Haskins at 15, they would regret it. I think the bust potential on Haskins is so much higher than it is on Rosen, as an example. At the very least, what you know about Rosen, if he you know wants to play here, he's going to be, at the very least, a really good Jay Gruden-style system quarterback. At the very least, Haskins has much more bust potential. Much more. Doug Williams is speaking as we're recording this podcast, or he's about to. So we're going to get this podcast out a little bit later because I want to hear what Doug Williams says. So we're going to put the Doug Williams conversation at the end of the podcast after he has spoken and we have a chance to just review it quickly. Um, But we will come back to that a little bit later on. Andy Benoit from SI.com MMQB is coming up. Let's talk about the Caps real quickly and the 6-0 Saturday night game five shutout, blowout win over Carolina. Aaron, you were there. I was Mm -hmm. watching uh, the game. It was a championship team style defense of home ice. It was the confidence of a champion. There was never they out hit them. They outplayed them. This was as dominant as Carolina was in game three. The Caps were in game five. And that could change tonight on the road where Carolina was very good in games three and four. And it could force a seventh and deciding game. But my number one takeaway, and you were there, my number one takeaway was even if they lose tonight, they're going to win the series. I mean, if they play the way they did yesterday, there's also, or excuse me, Saturday, then yeah, there's absolutely no reason they shouldn't win this series and go on farther. This was the first time, I don't necessarily want to say all season. But this reminded me of when they started to turn things around in the playoffs last year. The you know it turned from the finesse caps, the can't do it, to the total full team. We're going to forecheck you. We're going to hit you hard. We are going to beat you into submission caps that we saw in that run playoff run last year. Um, like you said, the forty eight hits, the thirty two hits, the forechecking. There was one play. One of the goals was set up because one of the Hurricanes players was very cle- uh, very clearly a little bit scared, a little skittish of being hit there. He didn't want to be touched, which allowed, I believe it was Ovechkin, to get the puck, pass it off to Connolly uh, for the third goal of the game. Uh, you had, you know, it wasn't a perfect game. They faced a lot of, you know, they made a lot of penalties, faced a lot of uh, power plays on the other side, but they were able to kill all of them, and for the most part, Carolina didn't get even get a whole lot of shots off on, on it. They got a few. There was one penalty. They got a little bit of a flurry, but uh, Holpe was able to stonewall them. But were they 0 for 5 on the power play? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a there was a stretch in the second period within I want to say it was the first half of the second period, like the first ten minutes. They faced three three power plays, was able to shut them all down. Um, it was it, it really did remind me of that moment. Remember last year, people were still saying, "Okay, can this team win the playoffs?" Then all of a sudden, you saw that little change in them, the little change in the style. This reminded me of that. How about the series Backstrom is having? At least at home, oh, all, yeah. you know, all of them. He's got eight points, five goals, three assists, and three home games. Um, in this series, and 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 Holtby was brilliant too because the Canes did have opportunities on some of those power plays, and Holtby came up huge, stopping thirty uh, shots uh, in in that in that game um, in that game five. Again, I, I don't know if they're going to win or lose tonight. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they lose. 
But I think that the way they played in Game Five, to your point, um, was the you know the, the point in, in the Columbus series where they started to turn their whole postseason you know upward, you know arrow upwards, and they dominated Carolina. They won a game in which you know they seemed to be the team that was reeling, coming off the injury, a devastating injury to Oshie, who you know broke his collarbone as it turns out, and he's essentially you know done for the postseason. Now the Canes get the the uh, Svechnikov back potentially tonight. Um, so that would be what four games after uh, the punch? Um, no, three games after the punch, right? Yeah, uh, in that game, was game three. three. Yes, uh, and, uh, and 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 we'll see what happens. I, I these hockey playoffs are impossible to predict, but the one thing that you know it, for anybody that felt like the Caps were going to be, you know, feel the pressure of a series that had been evened up, those days are in the rear view now. They, there's not a choking dog element to this team. They've got big game players now. You know, it's it's one of those things where once they got through it last year, once they came from 2 nothing down to Columbus losing two home games um, to start the series, once they came from behind to beat Pittsburgh and to, to, to get rid of those demons against the Penguins, once they won back-to-back games in games 6 and 7 against Tampa in shutout performances, and once they lost game 1 in Vegas and won 4 straight, they are they now have a swagger that they never had before. They look like the defending champion and the team that should be favored quite frankly to win the whole thing. Now, Boston who was the second favorite to win the cup when the playoffs started, they avoided uh elimination yesterday winning in Toronto in game 6-4-2 to force a seventh and deciding game. So, if the Bruins get through that series, it'll be interesting to see if the Bruins or the Caps which of the two teams uh, are are the favorites. I would assume, I haven't looked at the odds this morning like I did after Game 5 to see if the Caps had fallen, which they had, but I would assume now that the Caps have taken a 3-2 series lead that they are close to the favorites once again to win the Cup now that they're on the verge of eliminating Carolina. Uh, a lot of hockey left, as they say. You got Game 6 tonight, and a 7th and deciding game would be on Wednesday night at home. But with the way they played on Saturday night, Aaron, I don't see them losing too straight to Carolina. I don't know how they match up with the Islanders. We'll get people on to preview that series before it starts at the end of the week, if it's going to start, if they get through this. But I just saw the heart... Uh, in the mind of a champion, of a defending champion um, uh, on, on Saturday night. A team that was reeling a little bit, the injury, having lost two games, one game by blowout fashion. A lot of concern, as there always is with the Caps, from people who follow the team closely, talking about how you know something's not right and Carolina's taking it to them and they've had the upper hand for the majority, majority of the series, et cetera, et cetera, but not on Saturday night. Yeah, I... The only question is how much of that was because the crowd was great on Saturday. By the way, that was the other. It sounded thing. like it on TV. The, the crowd was really, really raucous. One of the better non Stanley Cup playoff games I've actually uh, I've seen from that crowd. The only thing I, I wish when they had gone up six nothing, I, I turned to someone in the press box. I was like, they need to spend the last eight minutes trying to find a way to get DSP to score because right. if they do, that would have been the single loudest reaction I think I've ever heard in a building before. Um, so you wonder how much of that was the crowd and them feeding off the energy from the crowd. But yeah, I mean, if they play that way, 
they should have no problem. I just I, I just found the updated odds. Um, I don't have the Stanley Cup odds. I do have the Eastern Conference odds, and the Caps are the favorite to win the East now. They are two and a half to one, and then it's Boston, Columbus, and the Islanders all at three and a half to one uh, to win the East, followed by Toronto and Carolina, the teams that are still alive and haven't been uh, eliminated. Um, the uh, All right, I, I want to do a quick read, and then I want to bring in Andy Benoit. Then we'll get to the Doug Williams stuff. We'll touch on the Nats briefly, the NF- NBA playoffs briefly, and then we'll finish up the show with what Aaron can't wait for, and that is a Game of Thrones <laughs> recap. Dude, you say I can't wait for it. I uh, <laughs> Over the past couple days, uh-huh. I, have n- I have gotten so many tweets saying, I can't wait for Monday, I can't wait for Monday, we need to yeah. hear this. No, I'm glad that people are into it. Have you started your spring checklist? Your hose, is it working? You got to check that. The lawnmower, does it start? You got to check that. Windows open. Mm, Can't get them open. This one's cracked. That one's fogged up. Looks like it's time for some new energy-efficient windows from Window Nation. Take advantage of their 33% off sale going on now on your entire project, including installation. Windows, siding, and doors, the entire job with installation is all 33% off right now at Window Nation. Plus, to make quality even more affordable, get a house of windows for as low as $69 a month. That's cheaper than your cell phone bill. And if you call this week, Window Nation will give you free blinds, free blinds for every window you purchase. Think about it. Take 33% off your entire order. And for $69 a month, that's about $2 a day. Get brand new energy efficient windows plus free blinds. If you're in the market for new windows, siding, or doors, give Window Nation a call to experience their industry best customer service with a free in-home estimate. Trust me, these guys are amazing. I've had windows installed twice in my home over the last 10 years. Harley, Aaron, Eric, everybody at Window Nation is first rate. Mention my name when you call and they'll take good care of you. Let them put a check on your home upgrade checklist for this spring. Call 866-90NATION today or go online at windownation.com. Again, that's 866-90NATION. You will not be disappointed. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's bring in Andy Benoit. Um, And Andy, of course, uh, writes for uh, Monday Morning Quarterback on SI.com, and he was a guest on the radio show with Cooley um, a couple of years ago, maybe even as recently as a year ago. I forget, Andy, exactly, but I'm so glad you made time for me on this podcast. And I I do want to get to the draft um, as a whole, but I want to start with some Redskins stuff because the last time – I remember calling you to have you on the radio show. You had written something about Jay Gruden and how Jay Gruden was very well respected as a pass offense designer, et cetera. And, and I agreed with you at the time, and I think Cooley did too. But what did you make of, of last year when Alex Smith, before he got injured, when he was healthy, and they never seemed to get on the same page. There wasn't quick game. There wasn't as much play action. You know, the stuff that had worked with Kirk Cousins. Um, there was more drop back. There was more RPO too. But it seemed to to a lot of us that, that Jay and Alex Smith never got into rhythm. And perhaps it was coming before he got hurt. But what did you think? Yeah, no, I thought that was true. And I thought it was 0% surprising. That's why I was shocked that they made the trade 
for Alex Smith in the first place because the, 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 from the get-go, I thought, well, that's not a good marriage because Alex Smith is not an on-schedule, decisive, timing, anticipation thrower. He very much has to see it and then confirm it before throwing to what he perceives to be the open receiver. And Gruden's offense is not set up for that. Gruden's offense is set up for more of a gunslinger is probably the wrong word because that implies a little bit of a recklessness, but a very decisive trigger puller. That's what Gruden's offense needs, and that's not what Alex Smith has ever been. So, And I know for sure they felt Alex Smith was leaving throws on the field last year. And when I heard that, I said, well, yeah, but you guys knew he was going to leave throws on the field. They said, oh, yeah, absolutely we knew that. But it's still hard to deal with that once you're playing playing offense. So uh, when, I, when that Alex Smith trade went down, I was it was at the Super Bowl week, and I was with someone from within the NFL, and the first thing they said, and I agreed immediately, was they said there's no way Jake Gruden had a voice in this trade. Yeah, well, I think we know in in you know after the fact that in in a lot of these trades he didn't have much of, vo- of a voice. Although we think, um, Andy, that he had more of a say in the Case Keenum trade. Before we get to Rosen and the other quarterbacks in the draft, what kind of fit is Case Keenum for Jay Gruden? Uh, a better fit. I, I don't know if he's a better QB than Alex Smith. I, I think he is, but we could debate that. It gets into style of play, but his style of play is is what you need in Gruden's offense, and that's why Keenum was successful in Minnesota a few years ago. He's willing to play decisively, and then when things do break down, this is where he's been inconsistent, and by that he's been high and low. Uh, but he can make second reaction plays when he's comfortable and playing well. And that's what he did a few years ago in Minnesota, actually with regularity that season. You know, uh, some of us believe that Bruce Allen in particular, um, you know, there was a lot of self-congratulating going on a year ago or more than a year ago when they traded for Alex Smith and gave him the contract <laughs> extension as their as their want to do um, uh, in in Ashburn. Um, and I and I feel and some people feel the same thing about Case Keenum that he essentially got him for next to nothing on a one year deal for three and a half million dollars. And you know he they there was some sense that Bruce perhaps felt he was on the verge of being proven right about Alex Smith because of the team's record, um, whereas. Jim had a little bit more frustration about the reality of of their offensive struggles and because of the Keenum trade Andy that they may try to let this thing play out and go with Keenum next year what do you think well I mean not to jump ahead but I think they'd be insane not to trade for Josh Rosen even if that means giving up their first round pick so maybe they play with Keenum, maybe they don't. That's probably a function of how they feel about this year's draft class. And maybe they love one of the guys. Maybe they love uh, the prospects or, or Dwayne Haskins or Daniel Jones. I don't know. I haven't been in their evaluation room, obviously. But um, it's, Keenum's a bridge guy. We know that much. And next year's draft class is strong at QB as well. I don't know if that would factor in or not. Uh, it would for some teams, but I don't know if, the Redskins brass has the job security to be thinking like that, like, well, we might get a QB next year, because that kind of implies you're thinking you'll go 4-12 and 12 this year. Yeah, right. Um, on Rosen, because I was, I was going to get there, um, it sounds like you think he'd be a very good fit for Gruden. Do you see a lot of, with the exception of Rosen being more of a uh, risk taker, um, reckless, you used the word earlier, he will throw it into traffic. Do you see him as sort of a version of Cousins, but with you know more stones to throw it into tight spots? 
I think potentially. I don't know how he is yet as as far as being decisive because he he was hard to evaluate last year. They changed offensive coordinators and a lot of their system as a result midway through last season. So out went out, out the window went all of his training camp preparation, all his preseason work, early or his early season work, and then they had nobody at wide receiver, and their offensive line was maybe the league's worst, and that was before it got rocked by three or four major injuries. So he just was not in any, any kind of position to be the quarterback. No one would have been that, that the quarterback that they're designed to be. So I don't know exactly what he is in the NFL. We do know this. Stylistically, he's a timing and rhythm player, which is what Kirk Cousins is. And I would think, based on how Rosen looked coming out of UCLA and on the little spare flash moments last year where he was comfortable, I would think he'll be a more aggressive trigger puller and that's a, a positive with him because his greatest asset, in my opinion, is his precision accuracy. He's not just putting the ball where he wants. He's putting it exactly where he wants. And that's in the NFL, that's demanded for high-level quarterbacking. So he's got the traits to be a really good, and I mean this in a very positive way in this case, a really good system QB. I think he can run your offense in a professional manner. I, I don't think that's true with Alex Smith. I don't know if that's always true with Case Keenum. And we don't, you know, Rosen's still a prospect, so we don't know if it will be true with him, but I think that's what he's capable of being. You say that you think it would be fine if they gave up 15 overall for Rosen. Do you think they'll give up, or do you believe that they will try to give up something for Rosen, if not a first? Well, I would have to believe that if they were willing to give up the first, that that trade would have happened by now, because Arizona would, would if they would do that to save face. They, so... I don't know what the driving price has been behind Rosen, but if Rosen were coming out right now out of UCLA, there would be reasonable people debating whether he or Kyler Murray is the top quarterback prospect in this draft. So why wouldn't you trade the 15th pick for that guy when we know that by the time 15 comes around, there could be at least two or three QBs off the board? Well, because I guess one of the reasons, if you're putting a big board together, he might be the best quarterback after Murray, but there may be a ton of defensive players that you have rated in the top 15 ahead of him, and he might be the number 25 player on your board, even if he's the second quarterback, right? Sure, absolutely. And and if that's the case, then then go with, go with the defensive side and do what you're doing with Keenum. I would totally understand that. That also, though would probably get into a little bit of the of how you view next year's quarterback draft class then because it's unlikely Keenum's here is your five-year solution. So you got to find a QB to play with at some point. That's got to be on their radar at least. All right, let's talk about the quarterbacks in the draft. Which of the quarterbacks, forget about whether or not you think he will be there at 15, which are the good fits for Gruden in his system? Oh, that's a good question. I would probably say, I think Daniel Jones, I mean, we're just talking style at QB at this point because we, yeah, it's the best you can do with all these prospects. We don't know of course. who's going to become Carson Wentz and who's going to be Jamarcus Russell. Yeah. So stylistically, I think Daniel Jones, and I haven't studied these guys the way I do NFL guys, but Jones, I think, is a style of QB that you can play with. Um Murray would be interesting because he's a, such an armed talent as well. We, we get, it gets lost with his mobility being so dazzling. He's, at his size, though, it's not realistic to think he's a true every-down pocket passer, and I do think that's what you want and need with Gruden's offense. So probably to answer your question, 
Daniel Jones stylistically. Haskins you could probably put in there as well. So whoever it is has to be willing to play on time. And one thing I know that was valuable with Cousins, again, it's just style again, but he had a quicker release, a shorter throwing motion. And the, the quicker your release, the easier it is to play on time. Of the guys of that are right now perceived to be, you know, top fifteen at worst picks, from you know Murray to Locke to Haskins to you know potentially, I guess somebody like Jones. Um, who's left at fifteen? Well, that's uh, that's a good question too because it's when you and I'm not I don't get into mock drafts a whole lot, but when you get into team needs and where everyone's picking, it's most likely that someone's trading up to get the quarterback which if that tends to happen sooner than later in the draft, the quarterbacks become more valuable as rookies because as the price of veteran QBs goes up, that artificial contract, that rookie wage scale, keeps those quarterbacks cheaper that much longer, especially on that fifth-year option now. Even that's become a bargain. So someone's going to probably trade up and do it. So I, I guess to answer your question, Kevin, to be safe about it, can they say two and a half QBs left if we're making an over-under kind of thing? Probably. There probably there'll be three QBs off the board by that point. You know, all of these drafts each year, and I think it happens more often than not, but it's not a guarantee to happen. Teams get crazy with that position, and we end up seeing the Jake Lockers and the EJ Manuels and the and the and the and the other guys sort of fly up the Christian Ponders fly up the board in the last week or so, and they end up you know being much higher taken than than you previously thought. I mean, do you expect this draft to go that way or in a way in which teams don't reach as much? I would err on the side of teams will do the reaching, especially with, again, with the like, with, with Russell Wilson, when he just got paid. Right. It's not just that you have to pay that to the next guy. It's that that moves the market for everybody. Dak Prescott, who's not as good as Russell Wilson, his price probably went up 15% after the Russell Wilson deal. So... Uh, it's, it's veteran QBs are becoming so expensive, and if the rookie wage scale remains in place as it's designed, that, that's always going to make the young rookie QB contract guys that much more of a bargain. So I would imagine we'll see more teams trade up rather than sit and wait. But it gets again if next year's draft class or the Trevor Lawrence year, whenever that comes about, if these if the future looks brighter than the present, like significantly brighter, they won't reach that. Yeah, they might they might be a little less inclined to reach. Right. I, I think it takes some stones to do that, though, as a front office. In the NFL, it's not a job security environment. Andy Benoit does such a good job and has for a while um, evaluating football and, and offensive football and quarterbacks in particular. And you wrote a column last week um, titled Scouting Tom Brady to Analyze College Quarterbacks. And, and you wrote about how sometimes we focus on the wrong things when evaluating quarterbacks who are entering the draft. What are the wrong things? What are the right things? Well, it's more <clears throat> there are two really right things, and if you don't have them, then the other things become borderline irrelevant. And one of the things we, we, we hear about, but it's really not emphasized enough, but we do hear about it, is accuracy. And we just talked a second ago about in the NFL, it's not just accuracy, it's precision accuracy. Brady's great because the ball goes exactly where he wants it to go and his receivers catch in stride, and that's why their slot guys always are, are so productive and run after catch. That's why their quick strike passing game marches them up and down the field because everything keeps on schedule and on rhythm when it's a precision accuracy pass and receivers don't have to adjust to the ball. 
The other thing that Brady does better than probably anyone who's ever played, or at least he's right up there, is moving within the pocket. And that's the one that never gets talked about before the draft. People talk about mobility, and they want to know, can Dwayne Haskins run in the NFL? Look how Kyler Murray runs. All of that is irrelevant if the quarterback can't at least play and move comfortably within the pocket first. You do need to be able to run at times, but it is so ancillary, and Brady's a great example. How many times does he scramble for big plays in his season? Maybe once every two years. The, the greatest that's ever done it is just weird, Kevin, because we, we all say Brady's amazing, but no one ever sits down and says, well, why is he amazing? What are the physical traits? Because he's not just some mystic QB. He has physical traits that make him great like any other player, and, and the two biggest ones, uh, and we're talking physical traits because this football IQ is also very important, of course, but it's, it's precision accuracy and pocket poise. You know, it's interesting when you mention both of those things. In conversations with Mike Shanahan over the years, he always mentions those things, and then he mentions a third that he says is one of those things that's hard to teach. It's more innate than anything else and natural, and that is throwing with anticipation. He's like, if, yep. I, if I don't see a guy that can throw with anticipation, I know it's going to be very hard to teach him to throw with anticipation. And I think feel in the pocket, pocket poise, and having that peripheral vision and feel and also that accuracy you've hit on three things that sometimes if they don't have it coming out of college they may never have it right correct i think all three of those things can be honed but not taught so you can polish them up but you've got to you've got to pretty much have them coming in in the nfl you're not going to develop them from certainly not from scratch and probably not from a low level if you enter that way the shanahan thing is interesting because that gets into a little bit that kind of brings us back to our jay gruden discussion in certain systems not every system demands anticipation passing shanahan's absolutely does right. because it's built off play action you're turning your back to the defense so when you turn around you've got to be willing to throw because you're not going to have seen the defense for the whole time so you got to know how to throw to a spot new england's offense for example and it's not only this but they do a lot of option routes underneath and on those you can't throw with anticipation because you got to see which option your receiver takes first so brady has and he's made some tremendous anticipation throws in his career but that's never been his style of play aaron Rodgers doesn't throw with anticipation often either some guys in the nature of their schemes are see it and then throw it passers. That's what Alex Smith is, but that's because that's what he has to be. The Bradys of the world, that's what their system asks of them. Uh, Rodgers will be interesting, by the way, Kevin, because he this year in Matt LaFleur's offense will be asked to throw with anticipation, and I'm, I'm eager to see how that goes. I think he'll be very good at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be the McVay system. more Or the, the Shanahan-McVay system more than it, it's the Gruden system. Back to the, you know, the feel in the pocket, the pocket poise and the accuracy. And let's take throwing with anticipation out of it because that, as you described, is, is sometimes more system driven. Which of the quarterbacks in this draft have those two things innately? Throwing with accuracy and pocket poise. That's a good question, and and to answer that intelligently, you probably would have to watch those guys for eight to ten games on film, which is not something I'm aware of. I've watched them a little bit, but I haven't studied them the way I study NFL guys. I'm not a draft guy, so I don't know if I've got a good answer for it. I do know Murray, and and we can. it's interesting about where the conversation goes from here, his downfield precision accuracy is sensational, very similar to Russell Wilson. And I think Murray's got a livelier ball than Russell Wilson. 
So that could that brings us to a different type of offense because your downfield anticipation is a little bit different than your drop back, throw a slant, throw a dig route inside the numbers. That kind, of, those are two different types of anticipation passes, you, or, or in precision accuracy passes. I guess I'm keeping the whole conversation. No, no, no. There. I'm, I, I'm following, and I think most people are. I, I'm wondering if you've thought about you know the quarterbacks over the years that haven't made it. And we've seen many more here in the first round, and I'm talking specifically about first-round guys that haven't made it from, you know, the the E.J. Manuels to the, you know, Christian Ponders and Jake Lockers and Blaine Gabberts and, and all of them. That in, in many cases, I think in sports, it, this this so much more the case in basketball sometimes, but it's about right place, right time, right fit. Do you think it's possible that any of the quarterbacks drafted over the years just got drafted by the wrong team, and if they had been drafted by the right coach in the right system, it would have worked out much differently? Uh, yeah, and I think that it'd be naive to say that's not possible, and Jared Goff's a great example of, of that probably coming to fruition. I mean, there was no sign of life from him as a rookie. Not that you can expect a guy to step into a, a subpar situation and thrive as a rookie, but Goff was not in the same dire circumstances that Rosen was in last year. Uh, and then when they switched offensive staff, they switched entire coaching staff. McVay came about. Goff's a good fit for their approach. You know, we've seen that work. So, yes, but I, I will also caution that it's a little bit of a chicken or egg thing. For years, people said, well, look at Alex Smith. He can't, you know, he hasn't had a chance to develop because. He's had a new coach every year, new system. And my counter-argument to that would be, if Alex Smith were running the previous system really well, would there be a new coach, a new system there? <laughs> right. Mike McCarthy was never thought of as a genius in Green Bay, but his quarterback executed the offense well, and Mike McCarthy stuck around a long time. So it's, 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 a, hard, it's a butterfly effect, chicken or egg kind of thing. It's, it's a hard argument to have, but I think it's a valid argument. Two more, and I'll let you run. Um, you have been asked many times in the last few years about Kirk Cousins, and you've evaluated Kirk Cousins a ton over the last few years. What happened last year in Minnesota? Well, first of all, I always look over my shoulder now because last, well, a few times ago I was evaluating Cousins actually in Minnesota, Super Bowl week, and I, I, said, I was saying something I think critical. I, I think he's a fine player, but I looked up and he was standing right there at Radio <laughs> Row, right now, like right there. I thought I'd conjured him out of thin air. Well, let me so just say, I, let, let me just say this real quickly. I may be in this city. Um, I could very well be. People could debate that I'm the biggest Kirk Cousins fan of anybody in the media over the last several years. But I promise you, he's not sitting here next to me. So go okay, ahead. Okay. Well. Well, very good. And he's, I had a coach say to me once, he said, you might have an advantage over us coaches about analyzing Cousins because don't, you don't know him personally. I've, I've since gotten to know him. But he said, if you're around Kirk every day, it, it skews your perception because you like him so much. He's such a great guy. I, I think overall what went wrong with Cousins last year is that they didn't trust the offensive line at all. So they didn't have any kind of a foundational running game. John Filippo. Their offense coordinator did not view the running game with the same importance as Mike Zimmer. And Dave Filippo felt that well, if, if we wanted to run, we couldn't anyway because our guards and tackles are not very good. And Cousins is a type of QB who needs the offensive line working. He doesn't, he's tough in the pocket. In fact, he's really tough. So he, he, he's not utterly dependent on his O-line, but he needs the O-line working within the context of the offense so that the play-action rhythm comes – 
that you get the moving pockets naturally off the run game. That's just not their approach in Minnesota last year. It will be this year, though, and that's why Stefanski's there, and that's why Stefanski told Zimmer, hey, let's go get Gary Kubiak if we can get him, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Kubiak addition, um, and, you know, they lost their offensive line coach tragically as well right before yes. the season started, which had major impact. But they could not, for a significant portion of that season last year, protect them or run the football at all. I mean, I'm sounding like a defender. Um, I also didn't think at times he played well late. I, I think you could say both things um, simultaneously. But Kubiak and coming from, you know, the Shanahan, you know, a lot of play action, a lot of boot, you know, I think would if they can run the football, should be perfect um, for him next year. Running the football will be important, though. Last one, and I'll let you run. Who's the starting quarterback for the Redskins in 2019 on opening day? Um, the safe bet would be Case Keenum, I suppose, because two things have to happen for it to not be Case Keenum. Well, I guess I mean, Colt McCoy, I guess, is in that conversation. I think it'll be Keenum, though, but they'd have to, A, draft a QB, which we don't know if they'll do, and then, B, Gruden has to be willing to play the QB right away, which we don't know if that'll happen either. So the safe money's on Keenum, but I, it's not a bet I want to make one way or the other. I don't know for sure, to be honest with you. But you believe that the best move they could make would be to, to figure out a way to get Josh Rosen into this system? Oh, unequivocally, especially that they'll probably get him at a bargain rate. I think that's the best move because for them, Rosen's the perfect style of QB. Now, the people making that decision, though, I don't know how they view Jay Gruden, if they think Gruden's our coach for the next three to five years, right. or if they think he's on a year-by-year basis, and maybe that factors into the decision. I'd, I'd love to see Gruden continue to have the job, and if that's the case, give him a chance to succeed and give him a QB that fits the system perfectly like Rosen. Um, I lied. I got one more for you. If Jay Gruden doesn't make it, and if the Redskins struggle in 2019, and they do move in another direction, would he be a sought-after offensive coordinator? Yes, absolutely, because I think, he, I think he is one of the leagues in the top third, certainly, of offensive designers. And the stories about him as a play caller when he gets in the zone on that, those stories make their way around the combine, the owners' meetings. He's, he's highly regarded within the NFL. It's so funny because I think a lot of us believe that some of the success they had there offensively when at times they were really difficult um, to, to, to really stop in 2015 and 16 were more because of Sean and less because of Jay. And I, I, and I think that's fair, and I've heard that too, and I understand how those stories come up. Uh, I think McVeigh and Kyle Shanahan right now are 1-1A one and one a for probably best overall offensive guy in football. Maybe put Sean Payton in there as well out of – respect for what the saints have done and continue to do um so that's that's totally fair uh but think of it this way let's say peyton is or uh, peyton let's say uh gruden is jimmy garoppolo who looks like a very good nfl starter just because sean mcveigh's tom brady doesn't mean garoppolo's any different of a player um lied again flacco or Foles? who has more success next year with his respective team after you know the trade and, and free agency that's a tough one Foles, we know fits what dave filippo can do but i would imagine if you got dave filippo in an honest moment he would tell you yes and Foles has limitations that you have to play around that's why he's been a fringe starter or backup for most of his career even though he's had amazing success at times as a starter lately uh, Flacco has been anemic the last few years, and his pocket poise, back to that conversation, it looks different now than it did a few years ago. 
I don't know if it's the knee or he had a back injury a couple off seasons ago, whatever it is, he's not the same player. And I don't think he reads the field with the same clarity. So I would need to know what kind of offense they're running with him. And I guess it'll be the Shanahan approach because Rich Scangalero, right. their new offense coordinator, that's where he came from this Kyle Shanahan's Niners staff. I guess Foles is the safer bet on that one, and it's a close call. Two good defensive teams, if they can get any kind of offense and any kind of quarterback play, they could be surprise teams. Or I mean, Jacksonville yeah. being in the AFC title game you know, the year before last, but Denver still has some uh, really good defensive talent. I really enjoyed this, and I really appreciate the time, as always, Andy. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Kevin. You got it. All right. Thanks to Andy Benoit. Uh, Andy was great. Really enjoyed the conversation with him. Uh, the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast, by the way, uh, on iTunes. Subscribe and then rate and review it. Doesn't cost you anything. Rating and review it, re- reviewing it really helps us and let everybody know it's available that it's available on the Kevin Sheehan Show um, dot com. By the way, the one thing I have noticed is when we do make a technical improvement after the show has already been released, it's not going to change on iTunes or any other platform because it's already been downloaded, but it will change on the website immediately. And you can always go and delete that show and then download it again to get the updated version. Like Friday, we definitely had an issue with the volume on the Charlie Casserly uh, interview, and several of you told me about it. I went and listened to it. Aaron did. We fixed it. But if you had already had it downloaded on iTunes or on Stitcher or Spotify or anywhere else, um, you got to go back and sort of refresh it or uh, download the new version of it to get that. But you can always go, here's where it's always updated, is on the website, uh, kevinsheehanshow.com. Don't forget to ask people to listen on kevinsheehanshow.com as well. All right, Game of Thrones recap coming up in a few minutes. But first of all, uh, I'm sorry, before we get to that, um, a couple of things. Number one, Adam Schefter uh, had a podcast this morning and he named the Giants, Dolphins, and Chargers as front runners for Josh Rosen. Did not mention the Redskins at all. Uh, I think it's a it's a real simple case of Arizona is going to have a chance potentially to get a later first round pick or something more attractive than what the Redskins are offering. Uh, the Redskins are not going to give up number fifteen overall for Josh Rosen. Now, if they took Daniel Jones at 15 or they took Drew Locke at 15 or they took Haskins at 15, then it will be a reasonable debate to be had as to why they didn't give up 15 for Josh Rosen. If you believe that Rosen's a better prospect and a potential uh, better quarterback. All of that other stuff that we've talked about before could be in play with Rosen, though. The due diligence is turning up things that we don't know about and potentially even things about his thoughts on playing in various places like Washington. One other quick note, too, before we get to the Doug Williams stuff. Um, We were talking about Haskins versus Locke, and I said earlier, I think that the football people like Locke more than Haskins, but maybe Dan Snyder likes Haskins more than Locke. The Jay Gruden quote from a month ago, either at the Combine or the league meetings, where he essentially said, Haskins is more of a developmental quarterback. You're going to have to wait on Haskins, whereas Locke is more ready to play now. Um, That tells you, to me, that Jay Gruden, who could be in his final season, doesn't want Haskins. 
I'd be very surprised if Jay Gruden wanted Haskins. Now, that may not matter. You know, like uh, Andy Benoit told us, um, that if it were up to Jay Gruden, they wouldn't have traded for Alex Smith. That if it's up to Jay Gruden, I don't think they'll draft Haskins. Uh, I do believe that he was more involved in the Case Keenum discussion. I do, much more so than the Alex Smith discussion. Um, So hopefully he has been looking at all of these rookie quarterbacks. He has weighed in on the quarterbacks he likes um, versus those that he does not. The Redskins will have to weigh in to consider, or have to to take into consideration, is Jay thinking short-term for his own preservation, or is he thinking what's the best long-term solution? I still think that the football people like Locke more than Haskins, is my guess. All right, now Doug Williams today. What are the big takeaways? Uh, There weren't many, right, Aaron? I mean, overall, you know, he still sounds like taking, taking a quarterback at 15 is a possibility. But he also says that the chances of trading up are less than trading back. I think he has said that now yeah. for the last couple of years, too, before these drafts. Yes. I, I, I think that, you know what happens with the trading back is there is this feeling when your team trades back and picks up extra picks that it was really smart to do it. You know, it was, oh man, how smart was it? For, for the for the Redskins to trade back and pick up those extra picks. Well, you know, in 2010, in the 2010 NFL, I'm sorry, the 2011 NFL draft, 2000, 2010 was Trent Williams, right? The 2011 draft is the Ryan Kerrigan draft. Am I right about that? Yes. Well, you know, the Redskins traded back, picked up some extra picks along the way, and you know who they passed on? J.J. Watt. So... Trading back, for whatever reason, there's this this reaction that many have a lot. Oh, how sharp they were trading back. They picked up an extra fourth and a fifth, and we can turn those into, you know, complementary players, and we still got the starter that we wanted. Well, you know, sometimes trading back isn't a good thing. Because in 2011, it wasn't necessarily a good thing passing on J.J. Watt to take Ryan Kerrigan. I'm not saying Ryan Kerrigan isn't a good player. He's been a good player. He's been a very good player. J.J. Watt was a major impact superstar player, even with the injuries. Look, in 2008, when the Redskins ultimately traded out of the first round, um, to acquire those additional picks, and then they went nuts in that second round. Remember how smart they were with Devin Thomas and 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 uh, and and uh, the receiver from Oklahoma, whose name is Malcolm, Malcolm Kelly. Te- yeah, uh, man, how smart the Redskins were to to draft you know all of those great players in the second round, which included, of course, uh, Fred Davis as well. So you had uh, Devin Thomas, Fred Davis, and Malcolm Kelly. Uh, all in that, uh, all in that second round after trading out of the first round um, and trading with Atlanta and passing on players along the way, none necessarily that turned into superstar players, uh, but certainly uh, they were picking at twenty-one. It didn't work out with the three second-round picks that they take. So I guess my point is, for whatever reason, this organization, and I don't think that they're alone on this. But they like to talk about how, oh, trading back is so smart. And trading up is too much of a risk. Right now, if you tell me that they're going to trade up for a massive impact player on defense or a game-changing quarterback for the next 10 years, and i got to give up you know, a, a third and a fifth to do it, 
to move up six or seven spots? Yeah, give me that. Give me that over trading back and looking smart in the moment, but missing out on a true um, you know, generational type of player or talent. Uh, in this particular draft at 15, the Redskins are going to have a chance, I really believe this, to draft a, an incredible defensive player. I don't want them to pass on a potential impact, you know, havoc-wreaking, game-changing defensive player to look smart by picking up a couple of mid-round picks and then getting, say, you know, Drew Locke at, at 23 or whatever it would turn out to be. I don't want that. I want a really good player. That's what I want in this draft. Um, I, I hope that that's the direction that they go. But you heard that from Doug Williams, and that's the first thing I thought of when I heard that from Doug Williams is, boy, they love to talk about trading back as if it's you know so brilliant all the time and that it'll always work out. Um, what else did he say of note? Uh, there wasn't a lot. Uh, it was interesting that he – he really, you know, obviously he hyped up the D-line, and he really did make it seem like in a draft with a lot of pass rushers, with a lot of front seven, potential front seven help, they're not really looking in that direction. Now, he did say if someone fell, he would take them, but, you know, the way he talked about it made it sound like they are not looking there right but now. But that's more of an interior player on defense, not necessarily a pass rusher. If the Redskins don't believe that they have a need for a pass rusher, they are delusional. He did say with respect to wide receiver, we have to have a go-to guy. Yes. Which tells me that Paul Richardson is not like this answer because he was hurt last year. He may be Bruce Allen and, and Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden like Paul Richardson from what I've, ta- what I've been told. Um, but they need a true go-to guy, which they will have a chance potentially to get in the second round. Charlie Casserly loves Marquise Brown. From Oklahoma. And the more you watch this guy, he really is uncheckable. He really does look like Deshaun Jackson. Now, I said to Charlie, does Paris Campbell look like Deshaun Jackson to you too? And he said, not like Marquise Brown. I think Paris Campbell looks like, at times, an uncheckable guy too. And a real, real playmaker um, as well. Um, Doug said they've got their draft board set. Could tweak it a little bit, you know, here. Um, but, uh, you know, the overall takeaway from those that were there, and I'll use JP as an example, JP Finley, you know, he said that the biggest takeaway is that, that, you know, he felt that Doug was essentially saying, you know, we've got lots of needs, um, and we're not going to be desperate anywhere. Um, so anyway, uh, don't expect to trade up for a quarterback. I think he kind of told you that, and I wasn't expecting that anyway. If that happened, that would be owner driven at this point. That would be the takeaway if you got to that point. That that was always the most likely scenario, though, as yeah. far as why it would happen. It would be an owner-driven thing. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that's everything on the skins today. You know, we're checking Twitter as the day goes on because we're going to have these days here over the next couple of days where news is going to break as we're on the as we're recording this and shortly after. Um, and again, if anything massive happens, we'll come in here and do a, a special. Uh, podcast. Before we get to Game of Thrones, let's do a quick weekend DVR. Did you have a busy weekend? Don't worry. We've got you covered. It's time for Weekend DVR. All right, quickly uh, on the Nats. I mean, they needed Strasburg to come up big yesterday. They couldn't get swept in Miami, uh, and they avoided the sweep yesterday, winning 5 nothing. Strasburg went eight innings, allowed just two hits, and struck out 11, one of the best performances for him. Uh, in a long time, but God, did they need that win, Aaron? That would have been an ugly weekend had they. And Ryan Zimmerman, by the way, woke up yesterday with two home runs as well. But to get swept 
uh, by the Marlins uh, would have been would have looked real ugly this early in the season. Yeah, it would have been alarming, especially after Saturday's loss where uh, Scherzer was kind of lit up a little right. bit. And Scherzer has not had a good start to this season. His location has not been on point. And it kind of quietly last year, he started to get hit hard, but he was so good that he could get around it. Now his location's not there, at least in the early part. I, I assume he's going to get back to being Scherzer, but there is, I think, a little bit of a reason to be concerned there. So, yeah, they desperately needed that win. Strasburg looked great. Uh, bats came alive a bit, so that was nice to see. Three games in Colorado uh, upcoming, and the Rockies actually, after a very slow start, have been on a roll um, as of late. They took two or three from the Phillies uh, over the weekend. Uh at home so you get Colorado for three games and then I think that the Nats finally come home but you know they've essentially been going through the first portion of this schedule you know a game below 500 and then 500 you know it seems like it's you know seven and eight and then eight and eight and then eight and nine and then nine and nine and then nine and ten and then ten and ten the the Nats right now hovering right there uh, around 500 I guess they were a game above 500 before they headed um, to Miami uh, and took uh, the, the finale yesterday. NBA playoffs um, over the weekend, and I saw some of this um, over the weekend. Uh, I am very disappointed in the team that I wanted to advance, and that is the Oklahoma City Thunder. And last night in particular, I, I put it all on Russell Westbrook. Um, Russ was terrible. I mean, he, I think he scored one point in the second half. He was 5 for 21 from the floor. Uh, you know, he talked about being more of a distributor um, when you know, you know, when defenses collapse collapse on him, and I and I get that. But at some point, you know, you you look at Russ versus Lillard, and Lillard's just killing him right now. Lillard was fantastic in the second half as Portland pulled away to take a three-one series lead. I don't see Oklahoma City winning three games in a row with two of them in Portland. I don't see that happening. So you're really looking now, more likely than not. Um, at a Portland Denver uh, or Portland San Antonio, you know, semifinal series, and we're headed for Houston uh, Golden State. Golden State got a, a terrific performance yesterday uh, in uh, in Los Angeles to take the second straight game in LA. Um, Durant had 33, and Clay Thompson had 32. Thompson went off in the first quarter, had 17 in the first quarter. Uh, I watched the fourth quarter from the Borgata. Um, in Atlantic City, that's where I watched the fourth quarter uh, as we were eating dinner. Um, but Golden State now uh, firmly in control in that series, uh, and and you know the Bucks play a game four to try to sweep the Pistons tonight. And you had the controversy, I guess, Saturday in the 76ers Nets game, but they're in control in that series, three games to one. Uh, and the Rockets, you know, got one of those performances from Harden where he was awful for for most of the game and then turned it on late and ended up with 22 points on 3 for 20 from the floor. But he got to the free throw line 16 times, and they won game three, so they're up 3 nothing. I would, I think game four in that series is tonight, right? Rockets-Jazz? I think that's tonight. I think Bucks, pistons and Rockets-Jazz are tonight. We mentioned the NHL yeah. um, from, uh, you know, from yesterday, uh, both Boston – uh, and uh, San Jose avoiding elimination How and about forcing that San game seven. Game last night, double overtime, double overtime, and it was great. The, the shorthanded goal in, in the second overtime exactly. won it. Exactly, and and the uh, first overtime was coming to an end just as Game of Thrones ended. So I kind of oh, stayed, really? stayed on to watch that. God, two overtime hockey's in the playoffs, so good. Uh, overtime period in hockey yes. is is so awesome. Um, all right, you ready? 
I think I'm ready. We don't have anything else to touch on, right? Uh, not that I can think of. All right, let's get to our Game of Thrones recap. All right, you've been warned. We're now going to talk about Game of Thrones final season, episode two, last night, which I watched early this morning. It was the calm before the storm, Aaron. No blood, no death, no goriness, no dragons, no white walkers. On the but, very end of the show. But ghosts. Uh, <laughs> ghosts. Um, all of the goriness, all of the you know stuff that m- makes a lot of you and has been the reason that a lot of you have fallen in love with Game of Thrones. That comes next week. That's never been why I've been into Game of Thrones. Last night's episode, to me, is what makes Game of Thrones so awesome. Because I've never been a fantasy you know, uh, television watcher or movie watcher, you know, sci-fi, none of that stuff has ever interested me, but this particular series has always been very light on the fantasy and very heavy on the characters. That's why I love the show. And last night, like we did last week, we got the characters, you know, for two straight episodes, you know, we got all the reunions, we've got all of the betrayals addressed, um, we had all of the seven kingdom power minus Cersei in one room. I thought that was awesome. Oh, it was great. It was such a great portion of it. We had them in a war room together. We had them at the beginning addressing Jamie. Um, the scene that opens the show with Jamie in front of Jan- uh, in front of Jon Snow and Daenerys and Sansa and Tyrion and, and Bran. Bran. Um, to see Tyrion come to his defense, but more importantly, to see Lady Brienne get up and come to his defense was really moving. I mean, the, I think, I don't know, this show is very emotional at times over the last two, three seasons. You know, when you've lost somebody that you really liked, whether it was Catelyn Stark or Rob Stark or whomever it was. I mean, Ned Stark, obviously, in season one. But some of these relationships that go back so many seasons and to see in these first two episodes, I don't know, when, when Jamie knighted Brienne, that was a choke-you-up moment if you've been really into this series. Sansa and Theon last night was a choke-you-up emotional scene. Remember, you're shaking your head. Remember, Theon saved Rickon, Bran, oh, yeah. and Sansa from Absolutely. the worst person in the history of this show, Ramsay. Right? Well, not and Rickon and Bran. Well, to, remember, he lied to Ramsay about who he had killed. Well, but he had lied not to save them, but to make himself look better. Because he, he didn't lie to Ramsay. He had lied to everybody. To that, everybody. Yes. Anyway, he and he... Save Sansa. Yes, absolutely. From, from Ramsey. He, he, he had the redemption arc And there. he came back for that moment last night. When yes. we saw him with Yara last week, he was coming back to Winterfell for that moment. And to see everybody embrace Theon, I don't know, I kind of liked it. I, to see Sansa come to Brienne's defense um, to convince Khaleesi and Jon um, about, you know, Brienne's defense of Jaime was, I thought, very interesting. And to see her and Tyrion both defending you know she defended jamie via brienne Tyrion, you know defended jamie right there i thought it was a little cheesy that there wasn't more with bran calling jamie out 
in that setting, and then they go to the tree and they have that conversation, and somehow, at least for now, it's resolved. Right. Before, because Bran says, well, we need every man in this fight, or whatever, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know. Next week is going to be, you know, bloody and gory and probably the bloodiest and the goriest of all of the Game of Thrones battles. Of all of, I mean, right now, it's supposed to be the longest battle scene in the history of movies or television. How long is the episode next week? 80 minutes. It's 80 minutes. 80 minutes. Right now, Helm's Deep in Lord of uh, Two Towers, the second Lord of the Rings movie, is the longest continuous battle scene. And if this is 80 minutes of battle scene, it's going to blow that away. I can't wait for next week. Yes. Don't get me wrong, but I loved last night. I loved it. I thought, you know, Sansa's sit down with Daenerys was really interesting. I mean, you know, in these first two episodes, one of the big takeaways is how they've made Sansa out to be the smartest person in anywhere. Actually, Cersei and Sansa are like the two. It's almost like, remember when Marjorie was the one that had Cersei figured out? Yes. And no one would listen to her, basically. Sansa's the one that's got a lot of this stuff figured out. And of course we we get to the end of the show and we get um we get John and Khaleesi in the crypt with John staring at Lyanna Stark. And he breaks the news. And I don't know, what did you think her reaction was? Because I think it's a subjective thing. I mean, they had to move on quickly because the horn started blowing and here come, you know, here comes the army the uh, army of the undead and we're ready for the battle scene, but I, I, I don't know what the reaction from everybody's been. Has it been mixed, or did everybody have one single definitive feeling it, about that interaction? It was definitely mixed. I li- I liked it because I thought it was very much in character. That's what her reaction would have been. Not so much the emotional part, but he is ahead of her in the ascendant in, in uh, yeah, I guess the ascendancy. Yeah, well, he, um, he's the he's the rightful heir. Yes, he's the rightful heir. And by the way, some people I actually got a few questions about this really quickly when it comes to like medieval England passing down. The child of the heir would come between the sibling of the heir. Right. When it comes to well, the, who's the first. child of the older. Heir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. Rhaegar was. Exactly. So yeah. that's why even though Daenerys is older and Daenerys is, you know, the daughter of the king, why John would come first. Plus they threw in the oh, because you're a guy, you would come first. That's also true. But yes, because he is the son of the heir, he comes first. Here here's the the the, the immediate reaction I had to that scene was Boy, she's less interested in her incestuous relationship with John, which, by the way, it makes is, sense. Is, is very Targaryen. I was going to say, uh, I so, mean, he, but, he had said in season one, oh, I always thought I was going to marry my brother. Right. So it, sleeping with the, her <laughs> nephew is not going to face her. And much more interested in, oh, I'm not the rightful yes. heir to the throne. And so, but they did end up moving on and looking at each other outside as you know, as they're getting ready to face the army of the, uh, of, of the dead. And, yes. and I, I, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to play out because all of a sudden there was this, this moment between Sansa and Daenerys where you're like, okay, they're, go- they're coming together. I thought, but then I, the last thing said was, well, what are you going to do with the North? And that's when they were interrupted because Theon had arrived. Right. Uh, I really thought for a moment there that she was going to make Sansa hand of the queen. I don't know that she recognizes. Well, first of all, how about Jorah's defense of Tyrion? Yes, that that's. And then so now we went from clearly she isn't trusting Tyrion because he's now blown like two or three calls yes. in a row, and the Cersei call is questionable and sketchy because 
you know, you have to wonder, was he defending his sister or did he just make another tactical error? Yes. Um, but Sansa came to Tyrion's defense, you know, in, in her conversation with Daenerys. I, and then you, instead of him going to fight, Daenerys says, no, I need you in the crypt. I need, I need your brain. I need your brain. Yes. Your mind is more important than anything. And that was because of Jorah's defense. Yeah. That that was a bit, you know, of a reach. There, there was a lot of things. I, I really loved the episode for all the reasons you loved it. I thought that, again, yeah, the relationship. So you did like you, it. I really liked the episode. I do think there were a few things that were rushed a little bit. I thought the Jamie thing was felt a little bit rushed in the trial. I thought Theon, like, I, I kind of wish we got more interaction with Theon coming in because while Sansa was certainly going to embrace her, there's a lot of people who have a reason not to embrace him. Well, remember the last time John saw him, it wasn't pleasant. Exactly. That's that's kind of my point. Is I, I would have liked a little bit more than that. I would have liked a little bit more of of John and Daenerys, but we're presumably getting that in the future. They they had it. They put in a reason to rush that one a little bit. Yeah. There were a lot of individual scenes I thought could have been stretched out a little bit more. That I, or at least got a little bit less result. I mean, just the fact that all of them were in the war room together and they all seemed on the same page seems off now granted you can say oh because of necessity they have to do that but how has that ever worked in this show well um yeah i mean they they have now they're they know it's coming no later than daybreak i mean they they all acted rationally in a show where people don't tend to act yeah well i mean it's just it's also in this particular show odd to see every single powerful person minus cersei in one room on the same team. Yes. That and so if you're not sort of for eventual everybody coming together and let's 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 figure out a way to all survive together, um, then maybe it wasn't your thing and maybe it was a bit cheesy. I don't know. Oh, we forgot about Arya losing her virginity. Oh, I mean I, um, I was gonna get to that. There yeah. were I, I wanna talk about a couple of these, you know, specific at least she at least she did it like in Arya, you know, fashion, like yes. is a tough I'm, I'm going Tough to take girl. what's mine. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the... Um, that's actually... That's probably the most controversial scene uh, amongst... From last night? Yeah, for, uh, from the fan base and stuff. A lot of people did not like it. They didn't want to see Arya lose her virginity. They... At least she lost it to the right guy. Yeah, I, It was more that they still view Arya as this young girl. I know. When, well, in the show, she's sure. 18 now. Sure. I mean, and Arya is so much more than Sansa because Arya is tiny physically. Yes. And, by the way, younger. Than Sansa, but yes. Sansa was at the beginning of this show a girl too. Yes. Um, the uh, the fireside chat and sing along. <laughs> you know, I, I Tormund my, is my favorite character on the show. Well, part of me was thinking that this was the scene, sort of like the dragon riding from last week, that people were going to have the biggest problem with. Like it was a bit too much of a reach, and it was a bit too, I don't know, too happy. And uh, except that it ends with Jamie knighting Brienne, which yes. I think everybody loved. And in front of those people specifically, getting, right. getting Pod in there, getting Davos in and there, Tormund. getting Tormund in yeah. there. Um, it was perfect. It yeah. was perfect. Yeah, it was. Uh, I I don't know. The, I, for, for me, it's m- always been much more about the characters in the show and their relationships in this show then it's been about dragons and White Walkers. Always has been. It, I, I mean, if this show were just about battles and dragons and White Walkers, I would have never, and many of you would have never, ever liked this show. Now, Bran does not know what it takes to kill the Night King. Why not? I mean, because he's never been killed. 
Okay. That, I, that's a good reason. I thought he's got all the answers. He's got all the answers, but he only has answers based on memories. And if he has no memories of the Night King ever dying, then he, you know. And so the Night King's coming for Bran, the three-eyed raven. We th- and, and well, 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 according on, to, according to Bran. According to Bran and yeah. what he told them. We don't know that Bran is 100% telling him the truth as much as telling them what they need to hear. Yeah. That, I think that's a very important thing. There, there are a couple lines he said in there. You know, just for example, in the Night King's motivations, I don't know if we're well, supposed the, to 100% believe the mo- what Bran The motivations said. were pretty damn depressing, you right. know, to basically wipe out humankind and have this endless night right. of darkness. If, if that's I the mean, case, why is it taking so long? I don't know if I believe him when he said that. Well, they needed the dragon to get through the wall. But I don't. Uh, but they were starting to march before they got yeah. the dragon. So I, I don't know if that's the case. I think that... That might have been more what brand what brand feels or you know saw in the future that they need to hear more than what it might actually be. Well, I mean, clearly John and Ari and Sansa, you know, are I guess okay with Bran being the bait, but they don't. They're going to protect their brother, even though he's yes. a he's a weirdo yep. at this point. Um, you know, you did go for an entire episode without anything from down south. You had a whole episode yes. without Cersei. Um, we don't know if Yara's actually taken back the Iron Islands yet. That's, that's critical. You're going to want her and whatever remaining ships they have. And I still, I know that you said that you weren't necessarily, you know, waiting pins and needles on this, but I do want to see Yara and Theon kill their uncle. I want to see that, that episode. I hope we get that before the end of this year. I I mean, we have to, right? I would think so. I, I guess unless it's not them killing him, and that's one of, you know, I, I've been trying to come up with, you know, Arya needs a huge kill in this last season. I've been trying to figure out who that huge kill is going to be, and I've kind of narrowed it down. I, I was thinking maybe it ends up being, you know, the mountain eventually. Yeah. But I guess Euron would be a possibility for that if we're assuming that, you know, Cersei's going to get got by Jaime or Tyrion. You know what I, I I was just thinking too. We did not get the conversation that Tyrion started with Bran. I wanted that so badly. Yeah. So why I, did I mean there was no indication of where the conversation was going either. Right. I really wanted that conversation because. How about the moment between um, Lady Mormont and Jorah? That that actually when, when I was and talking, then Jorah and, and Sam. When I was talking about seasons, I or scenes I wanted to go a little bit longer. I wanted more between Lyanna and Jorah because. That should have been a really interesting conversation based on what the relationship sure. should have been between them. Well, they're, she they're, should have hated him. I know, but they're cousins. They're cousins. She wished, she wished him, you know, good luck. But that good shouldn't fortune. Have, like the whole Mormont family hates Jorah. Yeah. So, well, the, the fact that Jorah supported Tyrion last night in that yes. way was just a bit of a reach, considering that he so desperately wanted to be her hand, and and wasn't there to be her hand, but. Especially given the mistakes, like anybody that wanted to be against Tyrion has ample reason yes. and reasons to do so now. He's been wrong multiple times in a row here over the last season and a half. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I love the episode last night. And now, was... and now we j- we get ready for um, we get ready for an eighty minute, you know battle yeah i do feel they telegraph some of the death like they they went a little bit overboard with the all right here are the pairings probably one of the, and they're talking about the future probably one of these two people are going to die in the next episode you know you had the 
Grey Worm well, and the Sande scene, and you had the and by the way the, that Theon and Sansa scene. Yeah. You had, by you, the way, the the Grey Worm and Masande basically saying, "When this thing's over, <laughs> let's get the hell out of this cold place." Yeah, that doesn't seem to like us very much. I'm I'm guessing. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if both of them end up dying next episode based on that what, scene. What but. about, also, we forgot to mention the little girl who was almost a Shireen, you know, replica yes. for Davos. Yes, I liked that. Yeah. Um, and Sam, you know, is going to... I, I, Sam's going to end up in the crypt with Gilly and his yeah, well, child. Well, he, he was... The, yeah. in the, in because that he, last, he gave in away that his last, sword to Jorah. Well, and in the last montage, you saw yep. them laying That's together right. with uh, little Sam in the middle. Yep. Um, I did actually like the little thing with her because you now have... You know, John has the Mormont sword. You have uh, Jorah now has the Tarly sword. It's just kind of a little yeah. interesting there. Uh, there you go. I mean, I, we we could go on and on. If I mean, I hope I I love the sh- those shows. I mean, I I think there have been a dozen, no less than a dozen moments in this show over the last three seasons where you are just. You're emotionally moved a little bit. I mean, I, last night to me the best the best moment of the whole show is Jamie and Brienne. It's the it's, that was the most emotional. I will never stop loving the Tormund Brienne interactions. That's those like, interactions are always. Great. I and I like the, I like the interactions between the Hound and Arya, which we saw another one oh, last yeah, night that, too. That, that was great. And then Bear coming up. Yeah, and, exactly. I mean, anything with it. I just I I really want Tormund to survive. I just want more of it. Yeah. Like he is. As far as secondary characters go, far and away my favorite. Great show, awesome show last night. I I have enjoyed both of them. I, it's you know being up with um, family over the weekend. A lot of people are into the show, and I still overwhelmingly more people than not just did not like episode one. I thought it was fine, and I thought last night was even better. I saw the, the one thing I did see a few times, which. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with if you made the episode longer. Like, if you had combined these two episodes into, like, one 90-minute episode, I think – and they, and you felt that would be better. I'm not going to really disagree with you there. Um, but I would – you know, at the same time, I'm saying I want some of these who scenes buys it? Who buys it next week? Okay, so Grey Worm, I think Theon, I think – Brienne probably buys Theon it. Theon because he's the closest to is closest I, I, I to Bran. Any any time because he's going to go yes, protect Bran. He's going to protect Bran, and I think anytime you had those pairing off scenes, at least one of those people are going to die. Hmm. I think Brienne now like that is the peak of Brienne's arc. There's nothing left really for Brienne. She's probably going to sacrifice herself to save Jamie. That's kind of my <laughs> my thought there. Um, so Brienne bites it. I think when Supreme Gendry uh, dies. Wouldn't shock me if Pod dies. I think Barrack definitely dies. Um, we, by the way, where's Bronn at this point? He's on his way, right? Yeah, Bronn. Oh no, he's. I think he's chilling in King's Landing. He, I, he's, well, he, he just got the offer to go he, kill Jamie and Tyrion. It was a if they survive the North. Oh, okay. So I think he's supposed to be kind of in the middle somewhere. I think there's a shocking death next week. It's going to be somebody big because it's so thrones to do it. If someone big dies, and and I'm going out on a limb here, I, I, I don't expect it here, but if someone really big dies, I think it might be Daenerys. I think, well, if I actually 
thought about that, but I also think you're right about Brienne that her arc basically has reached the end. I, I don't it, think that would be a big, big enough. Like if you're talking about big, like here, main here, here's big. who doesn't die. The people that don't die next week, there's no chance that Jamie dies. We still the yes. Jamie Tyrion Cersei thing is still to come. Yes, down I the road. And by the way, one one point from last week that I forget if we made off the off the podcast or not is that you know Cersei was drinking wine with Euron now. If she's truly pregnant, it may be an indication. If she wasn't really pregnant, that may have been an indication that she's lying about the pregnancy and she's fooled Jamie and everybody else again. Yes. Because Tyrion and Jamie right now, last night, are still buying that she's pregnant. And, and they specifically said that. They specifically asked, uh, and do so you still buy it? Once, once the, the White Walkers are taken care of, once the army of the dead are taken care of, that's when you get into this whole, how will Jamie react to fighting his sister with his child right right um there is one more i i did see one theory that i kind of like i don't necessarily buy but as far as you know after this scene like everything down south is going to feel like a little bit of a letdown what i don't think so i think so i think i think it's i think in some ways it's more interesting because cersei gets into it yeah but how do you do three episodes worth of Enough, I feel like, especially. Well, you may have a setup episode. Yeah, another setup episode. With well, it would be a setup as episode. they're going south or I, being pushed south. I, here's a theory that I kind of liked. So we didn't see the Night King at all yesterday. We saw kind of the line of White Walkers, but we didn't see the Night King when we. Is the all... Night King? Do you think the Night King's the Mad King? Uh, actually, I think Bran's the Mad King. <laughs> I, I think Bran is the no, no, not he is the Mad King, but he's the reason that he started acting irrationally just like because you set up the Hodor thing for Bran can affect things in the past I think we're going to find out that he you know you you hear him you know I burn them all and that somehow was Bran talking through someone someone suggested what if this is a feint and the Night King's actually going down south like flying on the dragon down south and wrecking things at King's Landing. So what we're going to open episode three with them flying over not open but at, at at some point, you're going to see, you know, you're going to fight them. There's going to be like a where is the Night King thing. We haven't seen him the whole episode. And it's going to be like he's going to have ended up flying south and destroying stuff down farther south. What if Ned and Robert and everybody else are part of this this army? Um, <laughs> I I don't think that can work, but you never know with this. I don't know. It was great. I enjoyed it. Uh, that's it. We got to get this podcast out because yep. it's late today. Um, enjoy the day. Back tomorrow, Tom, you'll be with me. Uh, thanks to Aaron, and it was really nice to have Andy Benoit, who I think is really smart, on the show today.